It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, just in case you missed the big breaking news this morning, CNN had a banner headline up. Champ and Major are moving to the White House. Champ and Major are Joe Biden's dogs. And I'm sure the way CNN views it, this is yet another reason that Joe Biden is a better president than Donald Trump because Donald Trump didn't have any dogs or cats or any pets in the White House. First president in a long time not to have that. So I'm sure uh, these two pooches will be getting all kinds of attention now that they will be part of the official White House family. I hope you got a chance to see Media Buzz yesterday. The segment that went viral was my interview with Frank Luntz, the um, veteran Republican pollster. And you can see this on my Facebook page or my Twitter page or the show pages. Um, Because Luntz had done a focus group Uh, one of his many focus groups, with a bunch of Trump supporters who um, absolutely despised the media, believed the election was stolen, and they were using words like biased, propaganda, um, immoral, unethical, uh, just, just absolutely hate the media. And Luntz is so down about the polarization in the country, and he had focus group of people yelling at each other, that he just says, I don't think I can do this anymore. I think it's time for my company to find somebody else. Uh, He is obviously depressed about this, exasperated. Um, And it was a very raw interview. It was a very emotional interview uh, in which uh, Frank Lund says he's thinking of giving up his career. This is a guy who's been around forever, helped advise Newt Gingrich with the Republican takeover of of the House back in 1994. Whether he follows through or not, I think it was just sort of revealing of the angst that many people are going through uh, in terms of the deep, deep divisions in this country. Also over the weekend, and I'll talk about this later on the podcast, Larry King died at the age of 87. I was on Larry King's show dozens of times. I knew Larry pretty well. And I want to talk about it not just because he was a character, but the way in which he changed broadcasting. So stay tuned for that. As they say, don't go away. We have more coming up. Uh, announced this morning, this was not a shock, Sarah Huckabee Sanders running for governor of Arkansas. Uh, I dealt with her quite a bit when she was uh, Donald Trump's White House press secretary. She obviously was a controversial White House press secretary. A lot of journalists and pundits and others accused her of lying. Uh, You know, press secretaries are often in the position of having to repeat things that the president tells them or to go out and, you know, she had a very combative relationship with the press because the president had a very combative relationship with the press. Uh, So she is running for the job that had been held by her dad, Mike Huckabee. He was governor of Arkansas for 10 years. Um, He, uh, I've interviewed him a lot on Fox and I covered um, his 2008 presidential campaign where he won Iowa, did much better than anyone expected, covered him again uh, to some extent in 2016, but he never got very far in that campaign against Trump. I've always been fascinated by the sons and daughters of politicians who then end up running for office. I mean, there are so many examples. I mean, even right now, you have the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. I covered his father. I was based in New York. I covered his father, Mario Cuomo, who was the governor of New York. Uh, And it isn't like they just get to waltz into office the first time Andrew Cuomo ran. He ended up pulling out of the race in 2002. His campaign was a disaster. But now he's serving his third term and I guess eyeing the possibility of a fourth term. Um, Classic example, of course, is George W. Bush, uh, whose father, George H.W. Bush, the late 
George Bush 41 was, of course, president, but also uh, George W. Bush's grandfather, Prescott Bush, was a United States senator. So this has been in the family for generations. I mean, it goes all the way back to John Quincy Adams. And I guess it's not, you know, if you come from a family of doctors or dentists or lawyers or journalists, it's not that shocking that uh, one of the offspring would go into the family business, but it always just amazes me because it takes a rare combination of talents in order to do that. But I guess if you grow up um, steeped in that sort of thing and meeting all of these politicians and office holders and important people, you there's something about your childhood and adolescence where you just sort of move more comfortably in those circles. Um, But what I really want to talk about is what everyone in the country is talking about, and that's Tom Brady. It was a really fabulous football game yesterday. Tom Brady is going to his 10th Super Bowl, leading the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, to a 31-26 victory over the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, I've been harping on this for months and months and months. What a less than brilliant move by the New England Patriots. New England Patriots, Tom Brady led the Patriots uh, with his coach, Bill Belichick, to nine Super Bowls. Nine Super Bowls. And they let him go. They let him go to Tampa Bay. And look, the amazing thing about this story, but by the way, it wasn't the greatest game Brady ever played. He threw for a lot of touchdowns in the first half, and, and the Buccaneers kind of hung on to win because Brady then threw a number of interceptions, and Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers is a very good team. Uh, but in the end, Brady pulled it off. The man's 43 years old. In NFL years, that's really old. I mean, most NFL quarterbacks retire well before the age of 40. I mean, you know, playing that game just takes a toll on the body uh, and the mind, really. And so for him to go to Tampa Bay, which has not been a very successful franchise for a couple of decades now, he's changing conferences, he's 43, uh, he's got to learn a whole new system, a whole new offense with new teammates, And somehow, he leads them into the playoffs. Meanwhile, the Patriots didn't even make the playoffs. And a lot of this had to do with his workouts. But also, there was no preseason because of COVID. So without having any preseason conditioning, he comes in. At one point, the Bucs were 7-5. and They won the last four games. They got hot. They won three road games in the playoffs. And back into the Super Bowl. Meanwhile, uh, Tampa Bay hasn't won a playoff game since 2002, the year that it won, the only year that it won the Super Bowl. Uh, and so somehow Brady pulled this off. It's just a remarkable story. Whether you like Brady, you don't like Brady. A lot of Patriot haters, I think, are having to say, well, Tom Brady is just an exceptional athlete. And, you know, he was interviewed after the game, and it's the usual cliche as well. You know, uh, I owe it all to this team, and we went out there, and the Packers are a great team, and blah, blah, blah. But obviously, he knows how to do it, and especially in the last two or three minutes of a game, you know, you want Tom Brady on the field, and the Super Bowl will be in two weeks. Uh, against the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's the other thing, I think it will be the first time in NFL history that a Super Bowl team will be playing at home. Now, obviously, the warm weather city teams have a huge advantage since that's where most of the games are played. But still, it's never happened in what? This will be the 55th Super Bowl. And that will give, even though the stadium won't be packed because of COVID distancing rules, I mean, clearly will give Brady and his team the home field advantage. All right, let's get down to more serious business here. Story number one. And that has to do with, uh, we now know that two weeks from today, or at least that week, February 8th is the date, the Senate impeachment trial will either get underway or be about to get underway. 
that's because Mitch McConnell successfully uh, worked out a deal with Chuck Schumer to stall the trial for two weeks. Now, the good thing about that is that means for the next two weeks, the Senate can not only get to the important business of confirming most of President Biden's nominees. I mean, the uh, defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, had to get that waiver because he was um, so recently in the military, is now running the Pentagon. But right now, Joe Biden doesn't have a confirmed uh, secretary of state. Uh, I guess there was a hearing on Janet Yellen. I think she's been confirmed by the full Senate. Uh, And you go down the list, you know, uh, he doesn't have a confirmed attorney general or interior department and all that. So that's got to get done. And also, given the fact that we're in a national emergency in in terms of the pandemic, this will give the Senate two weeks, along with the House, obviously, uh, to start work on this uh, COVID relief bill. I'll talk more about that in a couple of moments. But, you know, given the media's addiction to Donald Trump and the fact that he actually hasn't made any news in the few days that he's been down at Mar-a-Lago, this is going to absolutely dominate the news. A trial of a guy who is out of office. And I have said all along, every day that passes uh, with Donald Trump as a private citizen in Florida, there's less momentum because the whole notion, at least in the public mind of impeachment, is to remove somebody from office. Well, he's already been removed, courtesy of the voters, all of the court cases where, in which he failed to show that there was widespread election fraud, an investigation by his own Justice Department, which failed to show, as Bill Barr said, that it was widespread election fraud. And yet there was just always this fear. Uh, what would happen? Would he refuse to leave? And then, of course, the horrible, tragic uh, insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, which I think sealed the deal. And that's the reason he, he was impeached. I mean, without January 6th, you know, Trump is, uh, is back there playing golf and talking about running in 2024. The only consequence of impeachment, of an impeachment trial, if he were to be convicted, there'd then be another vote, which would only require a majority vote as opposed to a two-thirds majority, uh, um, barring him from running for office again. And then that, that is a way that Mitch McConnell clearly, who has broken with the president on impeachment, uh, could ensure that the GOP will have a future pretty much without Donald Trump. Um, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times reporting that Trump had floated this trial balloon of starting a third party, the Patriot Party, but he's pretty much backed off that now. He wants to be an influence in the 22 GOP races, 2022 that is, uh, and you can't do that if you're with a third party, you lose all your influence. So uh, on the talk shows, uh, Mitt Romney, as I mentioned earlier, was on Fox News Sunday, and he told Chris Wallace, uh, it is pretty clear that over the last year there has been an effort to corrupt the election in the United States, and it was not by President Biden, it was by President Trump. Romney, of course, the only senator in the Republican Party to vote to convict Trump the first time in the Ukraine impeachment. But Marco Rubio, uh, I believe uh, on the same show, he made it on a couple of shows, um, said a second impeachment trial of Trump is stupid, bad for America. He also said it was unconstitutional because this is going to be, the, the reason they're not going to get 17 Republican senators to convict is twofold. Any GOP senator who doesn't want Trump engineering a primary against him, particularly if they're up in 2022, has an easy out. One, well, you know, I think Trump did terrible things, but he's already out of office. The people have spoken. There's no need for a trial. Two, this argument that it's unconstitutional. The fact is, it's not really clear. There has been in American history, not presidents, but people who have this one case, I think from the 1870s, at least his grand administration, if I'm right, 
where somebody was convicted after leaving office because the argument that Congress made was, well, you shouldn't be able to escape consequences simply by resigning. In this case, when your term expires. Kevin McCarthy, the House GOP leader, who is one of the 136 congressional Republicans who voted not to accept the Electoral College results, uh, said over the weekend, I think everybody across this country has some responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Think about four years ago after President Trump was sworn in, what happened the very next day, the title was Resist, with people walking the streets. Okay, uh, Congressman McCarthy, there's a very big difference between having demonstrations, which is perfectly constitutional in America, because you didn't like the new president. By the way, Hillary Clinton conceded the next day. So even the symbolic protest by Dems in Congress wasn't like what happened with the serious effort to reverse the election results. And there wasn't, you know, an effort to bring all the supporters to Washington to march on the Capitol, which ended up being the storming of the Capitol. You know, when you say everybody has responsibility, then that means nobody has responsibility. And McCarthy's in a tough position because a lot of his GOP members um, don't like the way he handled this whole thing. They're all in a box, you know. They're going to be forced to choose, if you're in the Senate, between supporting Leader McConnell and not wanting to diss former President Trump, either way, you're going to turn off part of the Republican base. Probably the more risky thing is to cross Trump. Uh, in related news, Dominion Voting Systems, the company that's become famous for its voting machines, uh, filed a defamation suit today against Rudy Giuliani, former mayor, former lawyer for Trump. Well, I guess not a former lawyer for Trump, but he's not going to tell you wrong on impeachment. Having to do with stuff that Rudy has said. They're seeking, this company is seeking... billion in damages. Now, I think Rudy's made a lot of money as a private lawyer, and particularly with his association with Donald Trump. I don't think he's got a billion bucks in the bank. So I guess that's obviously symbolic. Um, The Dominion is taking on more than 50 statements by Rudy uh, at legislative hearings, on Twitter, on his podcast, conservative media, some of it on Fox News, where the company says... Uh, we were falsely accused. Here's the, here's the quote from them in the statement. Dominion was not founded in Venezuela to fix elections for Hugo Chavez. It was founded in 2002 in John Polis's basement in Toronto to help blind people vote on paper ballots. Its U.S. subsidiary is headquartered in Denver, uh, laying out various things that Rudy has said. Uh, the company said this in the suit. Not a single one of the three complaints signed and filed by Giuliani and other attorneys in the courts have contained any allegations about Dominion. In other words, they're saying Rudy has defamed the company and ruined its reputation by going on podcasts, by going on the air, by holding news conferences. Uh, But if you do that in court and you make false allegations, you can be sanctioned. So he says he didn't even have enough evidence to make these arguments in court. Uh, And then the company actually talks about January 6th, saying, having been deceived by Giuliani and his allies into thinking they were not criminals but patriots defending the republic, uh, they then bragged about their involvement in the crime on social media. So Giuliani is scoffing at that and will have to defend himself. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number two. Uh, Coming back to the COVID bill, so there was a big call with a bipartisan group of senators yesterday with uh, Brian Deese, he's the new top uh, economic advisor, I guess he doesn't need Senate confirmation, at the White House. And senators in both parties are kind of telling 
Biden that this $1.9 trillion bill is not going to pass as is. Susan Collins, for example, Republican of Maine, saying, well, why are families making as much as $300,000 eligible for at least some aid? We should be targeting this for lower income people. Mitt Romney, uh, talking to Chris Wallace, said the $1.9 trillion price tag is pretty shocking. And Angus King, who uh, caucuses with the Democrats, he's an independent from Maine, uh, he also is raising questions about um, the vaccine distribution, but also the total cost. So I always thought that Biden went for this really big price tag, understanding that he would have to compromise, and he wasn't going to get it. Because, you know, here's what's in the bill. Uh, improve the vaccine rollout. Absolutely necessary. It's been a colossal failure. Every single state that doesn't have enough doses and is grappling with it. Also, higher stimulus checks. Well, Donald Trump wanted $2,000 stimulus checks. Unfortunately for the foreign president, he didn't say that in a forceful way until after both houses had passed the bill. So we ended up with the $600 checks. So Biden wants another $1,400. Also, he wants uh, more and extended aid for unemployment. Also, um, he wants uh, aid to small businesses. All of those, I think, can be defended, although you have to quite question how much money should people get before they're not eligible for stimulus checks. But there's also, you know, liberal wish list things in this bill, like a $15 an hour minimum wage, which may be a good idea. But even if you think it's a good idea, it runs up the cost of the bill and it's a way of not getting Republican votes. So. President Biden, and this is going to be the first real test of his administration, and I believe he will be judged in his first year and possibly for his entire first term on whether or not he gets control of the COVID virus, gets enough Americans vaccinated, uh, and gets enough relief to people and businesses um, to get the economy started again. Of course, they're intertwined. If you can't get control of COVID, you can't get you can't boost the economy. Not in the way that the economy needs boosting. So either Biden can uh, compromise on a bunch of things if he concludes that Republicans are serious about a bipartisan bill and end up with a bill that's probably not as comprehensive, uh, as sweeping, or as expensive as he would like. Or he can say, screw the Republicans. Uh, We'll do this through something called budget reconciliation, which means that you would do it with zero Republican votes in the Senate. I mean, you can certainly pass it by majority vote in the House uh, because you don't have to deal with the filibuster with those special rules. And all 50 Democrats, if he gets all 50 Democrats, Joe Manchin has problems with the price tag in this bill. If all 50 Democrats vote for it, then Kamala Harris would break the tie and you would ram it down the throat. But of course, he would be giving up uh, all of his high-flown promises about unity and bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle. Look, Biden's been around a long time. He was a senator for 36 years. He knows either he gets this or his presidency is crippled. He knows he'll have to make a judgment if he can get enough Republican votes and give up a reasonable number of concessions. I believe President Biden will do it. If he thinks the, the Republicans are just stalling and don't really want a bill after the last, remember, the, it's only last month that they passed a $900 billion bill. That was a tough nut to get through Congress. And Biden supported not waiting for him getting that bill through called it a down payment. So he's going to ultimately have to choose between bipartisanship and getting something done, uh, I believe. And and of course, he'll have the huge distraction of the Trump impeachment trial, which starts in two weeks. Story number three. 
Uh, Andrew Sullivan, who is a pioneering blogger who I've known and followed for many, many years, former editor of the New Republic. He is uh, started off in American public life as a British conservative, uh, but then uh, kind of liked a lot of things Obama did and became more of a centrist, I guess I would say, with some liberal tendencies, but still a lot of conservative beliefs, and then was just a huge, uh, fiercely opposed to Donald Trump. So at that point, he almost was center left. Um, he has, you know, he now has a newsletter on Substack, uh, which is the hot new platform for journalists who, for whatever set of reasons, decide to leave the mainstream media. He had been writing for New York Magazine. Um, and there he talks about, look, Biden's trying to do all these things on COVID. That's great. Uh, he, he obviously ended up supporting Biden because he thought Trump was a menace to democracy. So, but Andrew says that on some social issues, Biden is getting too radical, and this is going to hurt him. On immigration, he's way to Barack Obama's left, proposing a mass amnesty of million illegal immigrants. Well, is it an amnesty if you have to have an eight-year path to citizenship? I mean, obviously, if you're opposed, you say it's an amnesty. Uh, if you're supportive, you say, no, it's a path to citizenship for them to get legal by doing certain things. Some Republicans used to support this after Obama's re-election, but of course, that's a long time ago. But then we get to the question of equity, and Andrew really goes off on Biden in this. He talks about Biden's speech and executive orders um, replacing the idea of equality. Like, we're all for equality, right? I mean, it's always a question of how you get there. We don't think there should be discrimination against African Americans or Hispanic Americans. Uh, we don't think there should be discrimination against gay Americans. Andrew is, is very famously gay. He wrote a magazine story for the New Republic, I think, two decades ago for gay marriage, which considered a fringe position at the time, and it's now the law of the land. But even Sullivan says, he says that the Biden liberals and the people who subscribe to a certain critical theory are now in favor of equity. They were throwing out equality, this is his opinion, in favor of equality of outcomes. And that's always been the argument. Like if you supported affirmative action, that companies should do outreach to minorities in order to get more of them into the system, and most major corporations have practiced affirmative action, there's a fine line between that and having a quota. A quota would mean you have to hire a certain number of blacks, a certain number of Hispanics, and a certain number of Asians, and that is equality of outcomes. The idea of affirmative action was it was sold as you give people a chance, a shot, by at least allowing them to apply, recruiting them, because they're not part of a, of a white boys club, for example, but you don't guarantee the outcome. So in this critical theory, uh, according to Andrew, equality means, and he's quoting experts here, that citizen A and citizen B are treated equally, while equity means adjusting shares in order to make citizen A and B equal. And he quotes from the, one of the Biden executive orders. Here's what it says, kind of wonky. Uh, Consistent and systemic, fair, just, and impartial treatment of all individuals, including individuals who belong to underserved communities that have denied such treatment, such as black, Latino, indigenous, and Native American persons, Asian American, Pacific Islanders, other persons of color, members of religious minorities, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Goes on and on. In less tortured English, Andrew says equity means giving the named identity groups a specific advantage in treatment by the federal government over other groups to make up for historic injustice. Therefore, there can be no equality of opportunity. Well, this is, you know, the argument about reparations and all of that. Uh, I'll just say this. If Biden pushes this, he's not going to get any unity with Republicans. And if Biden pushes this, he may even turn off some 
moderates in the Democratic Party for whom that would go too far. And by the way, it's against the Constitution to discriminate in favor of a group, because obviously if you discriminate in favor, let's just say it's hiring or promotions of this group or that group or this identity group or this ethnic group or this group uh, as determined by sexual preference, you are de facto discriminating against people who aren't in those favored groups. I mean, this was the kind of resentment that helped Donald Trump get elected in 2016. So I know that Biden has a very important uh, progressive wing in his party that he has to please, but I think this would be questionable. All right, story number four. Anthony Fauci has been doing a lot of TV interviews. Here's his interview with the New York Times. What was it like working for Trump? Well, Trump would say it's not that bad, right? And I would say, yes, it's that bad. It was clear he was getting input from people who were calling him up. I don't know who people he knew from business saying, hey, I heard about this drug. Uh, Isn't it great? Or boy, this convalescent plasma is really phenomenal. And I would try to, you know, calmly explain that if you find out something works by doing an appropriate clinical trial. And he'd say, oh, no, 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 no. This stuff really works. Uh, We would say things like, this is an outbreak. And he would say, no, it's going to go away. It's magical. It's going to disappear. So Fauci's really getting out there now that he's Biden's chief medical advisor. Uh, He says he didn't want to contradict him in public. He's been saying that in interviews. But like a reporter would say, let's hear from Dr. Fauci. And I would took no pleasure in contradicting the president. I would say, I'm sorry, I do not think that is the case. Um, He said uh, the White House allowed Peter Navarro, the trade advisor, to write an editorial in USA Today trashing him. Um, or have the White House press office send out a detailed list of things that turned out not to be true. And that was the same press office, says Dr. Fauci, that was making decisions on whether I could go on a TV show or talk to you. He's saying this to the New York Times uh, reporter. Mark Meadows would call him up after an interview and express concern that I was going out of my way to contradict the president. Sometimes the president would call him up and say, hey, why aren't you more positive? You've got to take a more positive attitude. Why are you so negativistic? Be more positive. Fauci also talks about getting death threats. He talked about getting a powder in the mail that scared his family, his wife, his kids. Turned out to be benign. But Fauci is talking about what it was like. Uh, Story number five. So Facebook is continuing its ban of Donald Trump, as in Twitter. Um, But Facebook has now referred this to a, it has a, it's called an oversight board. And it's got all these like luminaries on it a British Pulitzer Prize winner, a Colombian's leading human rights lawyer, a former prime minister of Denmark, um, a couple of people who were on the shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court from 18 countries. So Ben Smith has a column about this in the New York Times. This is an obscure body. And sometime in the next three months, we'll decide whether Trump should be allowed. And according to Mark Zuckerberg, that decision will be binding. It's not advisory. Like Zuckerberg, Ben Smith puts it well. He says, Zuckerberg was drawn to the idea of handing off the thorniest judgment calls to experts and then washing his hands. He said, well, it wasn't me. This board decided that Donald Trump should no longer be on Facebook. But it could well be that this board has a lot of free speech advocates to say, well, look, Donald Trump's now a private citizen. He should get back, go back to go back on Facebook. Uh, Facebook's VP says he was very confident the board would affirm the company's decision to suspend Trump. Uh, the morning after the mob uh, stormed the Capitol, but wasn't sure what it would do about in the future. So my position is this. My position is this. If Facebook and Twitter wanted to temporarily suspend President Trump after all that violence, remember the 20,000 National Guard troops came here to D.C., and on a temporary basis, you could at least justify it. There was an argument. Is there an argument now? I mean, obviously Donald Trump can 
can speak out and, and, and rile people up. But is there still an argument that private citizen Trump, former President Trump, is in a position to um, rile up people to the extent, extent that there's a threat of violence? I think with every passing day and week, it's harder to make that case. So we'll see what the Facebook Oversight Board does. But it is interesting, since Facebook is one of the world's most powerful corporations, that Zuckerberg has ceded this kind of authority to this independent board. Uh, All right, I said I would talk about Larry King, and let me do that right now. So Larry King, uh, unfortunately, developed COVID. He'd had a lot of health problems in recent years. He had more than one heart attack. Uh, I believe he had cancer. He certainly would raise a lot of money for cancer. The thing about Larry King is I always had a certain rapport with him because he was Larry from Brooklyn and I'm from Brooklyn and I sort of spoke that language. Larry didn't go to college. He was a late night radio guy. He he hosted a show, a syndicated show that was on from midnight to 5 a.m. in which he basically took calls because you don't get that many guests at that hour. And so he then took that show and put it on CNN, Ted Turner did, in 1985. It was a call-in show. It was just Larry and suspenders with a big mic, you know, uh, Columbus, Ohio, hello. You know, he would just take these calls and he would guess, get guests. And it was mostly a celebrity chat show. And, you know, he, Larry told me in one of our many interviews that he was not a journalist. He says he didn't want to be Mary Poppins, but he wasn't Sam Donaldson either. He was a feature interviewer. He was the style section of CNN. And, of course... Every celebrity on the planet wanted to be on because you got a good audience and um, you didn't really get tough questions. Larry was famous for not preparing. Uh, And and what happened is it was in 1992 that suddenly he also became a political player, not just a guy who kissed Marlon Brando on the air or hung out with Nancy Reagan and so forth. Ross Perot declared his third-party presidential candidate on Larry King Live. And this was huge. And then Bill Clinton started going on as president. And it was like, oh, this is unpresidential going on a late night talk show. But it wasn't. It became standard. All politicians do it now. It was not even, nobody would blink. And then uh, Larry hosted a, a debate between um, Russ Perot and Vice President Al Gore on NAFTA. He, in, in 2008, he hosted a debate. We mostly just let them talk, a primary debate between George W. Bush and John McCain. So even as he became more, but he interviewed world leaders. Middle East leaders. But he was always Larry from the corner. You know what I'm saying? He didn't have a lot of blue cards. He didn't want his staff to prepare him too much. When authors came on, he wouldn't read the book. He just tried to ask short questions. He didn't make it about himself. He tried to ask short questions that the kind of questions he thought people at home would ask. And that proved to be spectacularly successful. Now, in later years, his ratings went down. And finally, in 2010, he says CNN offered him a shorter contract than he wanted. He thought it was time to leave. At that time, he was up against Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. And he was up against um, Sean Hannity, of course, on Fox News. And that hurt him. And he said, look, they do opinion. I don't do opinion. He had plenty of opinions. He just didn't really voice them. And I just think, you know, later years, he went on a streaming service. Then he went for the Russian uh, network RT. I thought that was a mistake. He still wanted to be in the game. As I say, he was very experienced at marriage. Married eight times to seven women. Larry King was a character. And, you know, people just liked him. He, they just liked him. He did good television. And that's why I think it really touched a chord. Uh, why presidents are putting out statements about Larry King. I really like Larry King. I'm going to miss Larry. Um, and he just, you know, he was a guy who he made mistakes. He ran up debts. Uh, he sometimes associated with sketchy characters, but he changed the face of television broadcasting. And that's not nothing, folks. 
All right, with that, I'll remind you that you can subscribe to our little podcast here on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts. You can go on your Amazon device. You can get it on Amazon Music or Spotify. We'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.